1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 8 today. The title of the message is Running Ahead of God. And as we think about the title and as we reflect, just ask yourself, is it ever good to run ahead of God? The answer to that is no, but we do it. And so we have to wait on the Lord. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to let the Lord lead us and guide us. We don't want to be dragged behind the Lord, nor do we want to jump ahead of God. So that's the title of the message, Running Ahead of God. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to do a... The introduction is going to include just the Ark of the Covenant because we just left that and we're going to head into a new... Um, a new section that is going to show us this king that uh, the nation of Israel desires to raise up. And so they're running ahead of God there, hence, henceforth the, the title, uh, Running Ahead of God. But we want to learn from that. But we also, well, there's just some things that as I was reading through and reflecting upon the Ark of the Covenant that we saw in the last month as we went through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. Um, there was just some things that I didn't get a chance to say in the study that I kind of wanted to give you a history of the Ark of the Covenant, but also I wanted to include those little nuggets of application as it relates to the Ark of the Covenant. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this love letter that you've blessed us with, Lord. Uh, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And we pray, Father, that as we are instructed through the scriptures, Lord, that we would take heed in recognition that you love us. As your children, Lord, you have a plan for us. You desire to communicate with us, commune with us, and so we are thankful for that. And Lord, may we learn, may we learn from the pages of Scripture through the history of what you've done in the life of your children, specifically, Lord, here in the Old Testament, but just throughout the Scriptures, and may we continue to desire your will above ours in our lives. And so bless this time as we offer it up to you, Lord. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. So by way of review, we will start with chapter, actually one and two. Think about chapters one and two. God was looking for a man and what did he do when he was looking for a man? He found a woman. As God often does, looking for a man, he finds a woman. And that woman would be Hannah and Hannah was barren. And God was desiring that he would raise up a leader in the nation of Israel to bring them back to the path of God because they were far from God. 400 years had passed since the law, since God had brought them out of bondage, out of the um, nation of Egypt where they were slaves and he had uh, brought them to the promised land and there he gives them the law. And 400 years later, mm, Israel is not walking with God. And so God then, in looking for a deliverer, an individual that he could raise up as a prophet, he would be the last of the judges in the nation of Israel's history. Um, God raises up Hannah. Hannah finally comes to that place where God's will and her desires line up. And so God had a desire, he had will, but nobody was there to fulfill that. And so through Hannah's barrenness, it finally comes where those two Uh, wills line up and then God says now I'm going to bless you with a son he blesses her with a son Samuel she nurses him and then she takes him to the temple and gives him to the priest and says all the days of his life he will serve you 
And so Samuel is raised up in the um, house of God. He is raised up by Eli, the high priest, and he serves the Lord. He serves the Lord, and God is pleased with him. God speaks through him. He is God's mouthpiece. And then we get to this place and time in the na- nation of Israel's history where Eli's sons are wicked, and they're not serving the Lord, but they're serving as priests in the temple And it's very ugly, and God is going to judge that situation. So he communicates um, that ultimately he's going to kill both of these two young men who are not following after him. And they're going to die on the same day. And so that's prophesied. Then we get to chapter 4, and we see the nation of Israel um, and their enemy meet, and 4,000 die. And this is um, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 2. And so as we see that these 4,000 die, we move to verse 3 in chapter 4, and we see that the ark is treated like a good luck charm. We'll read that verse, verse 3 in chapter 4. And it says, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the, hand, from the hand of our enemies. And so what's that? They're going to bring the ark of God into the camp and they're going to take it to battle and the ark is going to save them? And so they're still not looking to God in the right way. They're looking to the ark as a good luck charm, as a rabbit's foot. And what happens? We see in verse 11, no, no, verse 10, that 30,000 die in battle. 30,000, and they, they, they're scratching their head, and they're asking themselves, what happened? We brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, but they were looking to the Ark as a good luck charm, as a rabbit's foot. And they, it was idolatrous. They're not supposed to do that. And so 30,000 die, but not only that, the two sons of Eli, um, Hophni and Phinehas, die, and we also see the Ark of God is captured in verse 11. And so instead of this Ark winning a victory for them, the enemy takes it. And then we see that Ichabod is born. It would be Phinehas' wife is pregnant, and she would die, but right before she dies, she names, in verse 21, she names the baby Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed. And so that's the history of the ark. As we get to chapter 5, in verse 4, we see that darkness cannot exist simultaneously with light. And so what happens is they, the, now the enemy, the Philistines, have the ark and they bring it into the temple of their god, Dagon, half fish, half man. And the first night they go and they see that Dagon is bowing down to the ark. The second night they go in, Dagon is bowing down to the ark, his hands are cut off and his head is cut off. And I think that's a very important thing for us to learn. Let me read that verse for you. It's... 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. It says, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Now, I didn't mention this, but this is something that we need to understand. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. In other words, light and darkness do not mix. You can't have light 
and darkness simultaneously. Why? The light overcomes the darkness. Darkness flees in the presence of light. And I think a point that I failed to make, but something as I was reading through it and just totally stood out, I I noticed oftentimes in people's lives they will have a struggle. I noticed there's a dilemma, a problem, uh, just something that's going on. It can be a sin. It can be something that is just overwhelming. And I notice people in that struggle focus on the struggle, but I believe the focus should be on God, not on the darkness of a situation, not on the temptation of a situation. So say I struggle with some sin, anger. I struggle with pornography. I struggle with alcohol. I struggle with smoking weed. I struggle with something that is just bringing me into bondage. And I notice a lot of people will be like, can you help me with this struggle? Can you help me with this dilemma? Help me with this bondage. I think the key point that this chapter is teaching us, don't focus on the struggle. Focus on the Lord. Focus on the light and the darkness will flee. That temptation, that struggle, that thing will take its rightful place somewhere under the Lord as we elevate the Lord and put him first. And so don't so much look at the struggle or the thing that is bringing you into bondage. Look to the Lord the struggle will take its rightful place under God, okay? And, and we may struggle with things all our life, but look to the Lord, look to serve the Lord, look to obey the Lord, look to the light of what God wants to do to expose it. Don't struggle on the thing. As we move to chapter six in verse one, the ark of the Lord remains in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So they capture the ark, they take it, And it remains there for seven months. In verse 2, we see the Philistines call for the priest and the diviners to come up with a plan to send the ark away. And so it's becoming a problem for them. They get tumors, right? People are dying. It's not anything good in the the camp of the enemy. And they want to get rid of it. And so what do they do? Verses 7 through 12, they devise an impossible scenario And God answers. They come up with this plan that will put two cows that are lactating, giving milk to their baby calves, and will hook it up to a cart. We'll put the ark of the God on the cart along with this little box that has these golden images of our tumors, our hemorrhoids, and the rats that plagued us. And we'll send it up the road. And if God is really the one that's bringing this judgment on us, then the impossible thing is going to happen. The cows are going to do that which is unnatural and go away from their baby calves straight up the road and they'll take the ark back to the nation of Israel. And what happens? God answers because the ark does just that. Those cows take the ark exactly back where they say. But something takes place in the midst of that in verse 19. 50,070 Israelites from Beth Shemesh are struck down for looking into the ark. They lift the mercy seed off of the ark and they look into the ark, something that they were forbidden to do and 50,000 plus die. And what that spoke to me, and again, I don't think I mentioned this, but I mentioned it a little bit during the studies. But sometimes we have no business looking into things that we have no business looking into. Simple as that. Um... Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. And there are things that we just don't need to know. Um, In information, 
I believe information is on a need-to-know basis and not everybody needs to know everything. I see this in couples and I see it in a struggle. So within marriages or within couples, I'll notice that something happens and one person finds out and they want to know every detail of everything that took place. And sometimes we just don't need all that information. It's going to bring death. If God is calling us to forgive, if God is calling us to move forward, if God is calling us to let the past be the past, then let the past lie in the past. And I think sometimes we ask for too much, either curiosity or we're nosy or we're just curious. We need to know these things and we're just asking too much. Information is on a need-to-know basis. And when they took the mercy seat off of the Ark of the Covenant and looked into it, it brought death. A lot of people died. And so again, number one, we need to be we need to be careful how much we ask of any given situation, but we also need to be careful of how much we express and give in information. Not everybody needs to know everything. So be careful with that because it brings death. Um, as we move on in chapter 7, verse 2, 20 years pass while the nation of Israel wonders what to do with the ark. So the ark of the covenant comes back. Now what happens in that 20 years? For the nation of Israel, nothing. Nothing that we need to know that's given in the scriptures because we're not given the information. But what's happening in the life of Samuel, he's continuing on in faithfulness. He continues on in doing what God has called him to do. And God is continuing to prepare him for what he has prepared for him. And so it's beautiful in that sense. As you get to verse 3, Samuel speaks to all the house of Israel. And this is the first time since... Chapter 4, verse 1. And so think about that. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And Samuel hasn't been able to speak into Israel's life as God's prophet, as God's judge, which means he's, he's proclaiming wisdom, but the nation wasn't ready for that. And so you see 20 years go by, and now finally Samuel gets a chance to speak. And God delivers the nation from the Philistines in verse 10. Let me read that to you. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. This is very important to introduce our next chapter. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. The Philistines are looking to their God, their false God, Dagon, Baal, Ashtoreth, all these gods, right? So Baal was in charge of what? Weather. And God uses thunder to confuse them and nation of Israel wins the battle. Now the nation of Israel is lining up with God's will. The nation of Israel is coming back to uh, that place. But and then we take a turn in, verse, in chapter 8. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Title of our message, Running Ahead of God. That was our introduction to lead up to this. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. And so, as it is, unfortunately, oftentimes in ministry, um, the family was neglected. Samuel was an awesome prophet of God. But somehow his ministry and his ways weren't translated to his children. 
And the Bible doesn't tell us why that took place. But we see that take place oftentimes. I've often heard it said that family is your first ministry. I don't necessarily agree with that. I understand the sentiment of it. But I believe that God is your first and foremost. And then things should take place in priority. And your family should always be your first priority. And so somehow maybe that didn't transpire here. I know that that's been a struggle in my life being involved in ministry. And I've seen my family struggle and suffer through some of that. And so I totally relate to this and what's taking place. Um, But notice Samuel's heart in the midst of it, what he names his children. His first son is Joel. And it means the Lord is God. And so Samuel is being raised without a father in the temple by Eli. We know Eli wasn't a good father to his kids because his kids were really wicked. But God is, in a sense, going to take the place of his father. We know that God was perfect, but somehow it didn't translate in the fact that maybe he didn't have a human father and he wasn't a father to his kids. But he is a lover of the Lord and he does seek the Lord. His first kid's name again, Joel, the Lord is God. His second son, Abijah, means father or possessor or worshiper of Jehovah. So he's naming his kids in endearing terms that are dedicated to the Lord. We know that he's right with God and that his desire is to be faithful to God in all that he called him to. But somehow it doesn't get communicated. Notice verse 3, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So they didn't follow after their father in in his passion for the Lord. And unfortunately, kids have a free will, or fortunately, and they have to make a choice for themselves at some point. So whatever caused this to transpire, they didn't follow after the Lord. Notice, they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, And they perverted justice, and that's not the heart of God as ministers. So because of this, notice verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel is going to have to own up to that. He's going to have to own up to the fact that his sons are not walking in, in his ways, in his path, And he placed them in ministry. And I think that's where he probably went wrong. He should have discerned that if his kids are not walking with God, they shouldn't be serving God. They shouldn't be placed in a position of influence in the temple. And so they they come to him, they let him know. And their rationale, their reason uh, for wanting a king is partly because they struggle with seeing Samuel old and he's probably going to die soon. And so they're thinking, man, this can't, we don't want these guys to reign over us. And that's legitimate. But the last part of that sentence says, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We're going to see that that's not a good motive. And God is going to speak truth into that. Notice verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Has anybody ever displeased you? I wonder what it is that you do with that. Samuel did the right thing. He prayed to the Lord. He went to the Lord. He didn't immediately communicate that with everybody. He didn't go and talk about it with everyone. He went straight to the Lord. And I think that shows, again, the heart of this godly man. 
So in and of itself, the desire to have a king was not a bad thing. God knew one day Israel would have a king. 400 years before this, God gave instructions to Israel about their future king. And we saw that in our time of responsive reading in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. So a king was in God's plan for Israel. But was it in God's plan for this time? No, we're going to see that it's not. And so what the people are going to get is the people's choice for a king. And people have a tendency to look at the outward appearance and at things from the outward, and then they make an assessment about that. They judge that. And so they look at it from that perspective. And that's not a good thing. We need to look to the Lord and let God in his timing lead us and guide us. And I believe God's choice, we're going to see as the second king, would have been David. But he's going to give them eventually their first choice. And we're going to see that that's not a good thing. Moving on, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel. He told it to the Lord. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. I find this endearing on God's part that he can empathize with where Samuel's coming from. And Samuel is feeling rejected. It's going to say in the next chapter, we'll see it next time we study the book of 1 Samuel, but it's going to say in the next chapter that God spoke in the ear of Samuel. Think about how intimate that is. Isn't that awesome? That God would speak to you in your ear and give you information. Probably not an audible voice, but something that you just sense the Lord's closeness in your ear communicating something. And so with that, God sees that Samuel is heartbroken. Wow, the people are rejecting me. What does God tell them? They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. He's going to go on to tell them, they've been doing this since I brought them out of Egypt. They've been complaining. They've not been seeking me, looking to me. And it's been kind of on and off. Notice verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And so what God's going to do is God is going to let them know. He's going to lay it on the line what a king is going to do and how they are going to be inhibited by a king, how they are going to be treated by a king, and what the king is going to do And that is so that that information is going to bring accountability. When we have information, we are accountable to that information. How will God judge the world? He will judge it based on the light that the world receives. You ever get that question? Well, how's God going to send someone to hell who's never heard the gospel? That's not fair. God fair. No, God will judge us based on the light we receive. And so if there's a person in some hut or some tent in the outbacks or somewhere in, you know, faraway land, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that we have the witness of creation. And if they respond to the witness of creation, God will judge them based on that. When you walk outside, when you see God's wonder, when you see the sun shining and just the beauty, the majesty of God's creation, it screams creator. God will judge them based on the light that they've been given. What about us? We've received a lot of light. When we read our Bible, we're liable. We're accountable. And that's not a bad thing. 
Hopefully, when we read our Bible and we get information, we want to obey it. We're walking by faith and not by sight. We're trusting God. We're enduring because we have all this information that God wants to give us. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to the officers and servants And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And so if you would summarize what this king is going to do, what is he going to do? He's going to take, 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 and keep on taking. And man, he's only going to take a tenth of their sheep. That's like their tithe or their tax, if you will. Wouldn't that be awesome if we were only taxed 10%? I don't know where you're at, but uh, there's like anywhere from what, like 30 to almost some, some 40% in a tax bracket. Did you know that you work from January 1st to about May 25th before you get to keep any of the money that you make at work if you have a job that goes from January to December? Isn't that crazy? All going to taxes. And so here he's letting them know God is speaking through his prophet Samuel to the nation of Israel and he's letting them know The thing that you're desiring maybe isn't exactly how you see it. The thing that you're longing for, maybe, here, let me help you with a perspective. And God sheds light that this king is going to set up. And it's not going to be so much that he's just going to defend them, that he's going to be their leader, but he's going to take a lot from them. Notice their response in verse 18, or God, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself and the Lord will not hear you in that day. That's a harsh, hard verse. And what is God saying? I am telling you what's going to happen so that when it happens, if this is what you want, I will give you what you want. God will give us what we insist upon. But God will also let us know that that thing that we insist upon is not good. And if we demand it and we get it, then we separate ourselves from this beauty of God, his protection and his hand and just all of these things. And so God makes it very clear to them. Notice their response in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so there you have once again mentioned the motive of why they wanted to be a king. They wanted to be like the world. The Bible says over and over and over that the world is our enemy. 
that the system that exists in the world, if you look at the news yesterday, you will see that in North Carolina, South Carolina? One of the Carolinas. North. There is a protest. There is a white supremacist group that is so excited what's going on politically and they believe that it's matching up with their ideology. I don't believe it is, but they believe it is. And then there were anti-protesters against these protesters. And so this guy decides, I'm going to drive my car and I'm going to run people over and killed one person. And this is politics in our nation. And in Korea, we have this thing going on where we have a dictator that is saying, I'm basically going to shoot my nuke, my warhead at Guam. And you just have all this chaos and confusion that's taking place. And if you were to take the pulse of this country, you would see that 50% are divided one way and 50% are divided another way. And then you have Christians that are in the midst of all of this chaos and confusion. And guys, when we get in the mix of this political junk, all we do is bring more chaos and confusion. We are to rise above these things and be very, very careful to hear from God. Because God's not about all this junk. It's a worldly thing. It's a worldly system. And it is infused with demonic stuff. And all it's going to do is create confusion. I've seen it. I've seen it in my loved ones. I've seen it in friends. You have Trump wanting to build a wall to divide Mexico from America because whatever reason he wants to do it. Whether you think it's right he wants to do it, whether you think it's wrong he wants to do it. And then we form opinions and then we talk about this stuff and all we're doing is continuing to isolate. That's worldly stuff. The Bible clearly says, do not love the world nor the things in the world for the love of the world and the things that are in the world is not from the Father but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father and the world is passing away. In James chapter four it says, Do not have friendship with the world. It's enmity with God. You are against God when you are a friend of the world. Over and over in the scriptures, we are encouraged to be careful with the world. And so you see here, the nation of Israel's desire is to be like the world. And God wanted to give them a king in his time. But they're running ahead of God And they're fearful because they look at Samuel and he's old and they're in their own estimation, in their own opinion, in their own knowledge, they're sizing up the situation and saying, well, Samuel, your your sons are wicked and they're not walking in your path and you're old and you're going to die. Samuel doesn't die for a long time. If you know, if you read the book of 1 Samuel, he's got a lot of good years left in him to lead the nation of Israel. And God is using this man in a tremendous way. But they don't want to hear from him. And so they're looking at it and they're sizing it up and they're fearful. And we want a king and we want him right now. What do they do? They run ahead of God. They run ahead of God and they're like, come on, God, follow our plan. And God's like, I will have nothing to do with your plan because I have a perspective that you don't have. And you need to look at me and let me lead you. You need to let me guide you. You need to let me go before you. I will fight your battles. They wanted someone to fight our battles? Really? It says that right there. 
and go out before us and fight our battles, verse 20. God had just given them victory. He created thunder that confused the enemy and they turned on themselves. They want to go from a theocracy governed by God to a monarchy governed by a person, a king. And God's going to give it to them. And we're going to see the history of all of that and what that means. Verse 21 says, And Samuel heard all the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. Again, just a beautiful dynamic. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. We want God to go before us and lead us. We don't want God to drag us into his will. We don't want to run ahead of God and tell him to come on and follow us. We simply want to wait on the Lord and then follow his lead. God is faithful to do that. I've said this just about as long as I've been a Christian. God will give you light for one step at a time. Walk in the light that he is providing and you will be in the center of God's will, letting him lead you. What's that? He's not going to tell you what's going to happen in five years. Pastor Chuck Smith prayed one time, God, show me the church and what's going on. What's going to happen in the next five years? And Pastor Chuck Smith said, God spoke to him and said, Chuck, I've called you to walk by faith just like I've called all my children to walk by faith. You have to trust me. But God is faithful to give us light for that next step, isn't he? And even when we make a mistake, God is faithful to redirect us and to re-guide us. So we don't have to be fearful about that, but we don't want to run ahead of God and we don't want to be dragged by God. There's a scripture in Hosea that relates to this section of scripture. Let me read it to you. It's Hosea chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Hosea writes, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and and took him away in my wrath. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see that as we continue. I wanted to do chapter 8 and 9, but 9 has to go with 10. So next time we study 1 Samuel, we'll look at verse, uh, chapters 9 and 10, and we'll see this king raised up and the circumstances behind it. But remember, it's the people's choice. It's not God's choice. We're not going to see God's choice until we meet David, that little shepherd boy that has a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> I will say this in closing. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Let him choose for you. Let him guide you. Let him lead you. And he will be faithful to do that. But you, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, have to pray what? Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Amen? Father, we thank you for your plan for us. We thank you, Lord, that you want us to be in step with you and touch and in tune with the flow of your spirit and your leading. And you called us to walk by faith. But, Lord, it's so wonderful to see as you go before us, providing light for the very next step and then the very next step and then the very next step. And that is the legacy of our life. And so, Lord, sometimes we feel like we're 
jumping into these dark chasms, but all we're doing is really walking in the light that you are providing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to do that. I pray that we would be desirous to do that. I pray that we would not insist upon our wills. And, Lord, I also pray that we wouldn't look into things that we have no business looking into. Help us in these things, Lord, and help us to grow as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.